What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have been made like Gomorrah. Father, your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it certainly does cut deep. It divides between soul and spirit and joint and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, which we recognize as the prophet Jeremiah declared are deceitful. They're desperately wicked. We don't even know many times the depths of the wickedness of our own hearts, and yet you search our heart, and what you find in our heart, it doesn't, Lord, it doesn't surprise you. You know what we are. You know who we are, that we are just dust. And yet, Lord, you became a man. You made yourself a little lower than the angels crowned with glory and honor that you might be the perfect high priest to save us. And you save us to the uttermost as we come to you. So we come to you tonight rejoicing in the salvation that you have given to us because as we just sang, you are risen from the dead. You've conquered death. So Lord, conquer sin and death in our lives, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people agreed saying, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever been asked or perhaps told to do something immensely difficult, even to the point of being impossible. Ever come to a request that someone gives to you where you just say, I'm not entirely sure that that's even possible to do what you are asking me to do. In the 8th century BC, a prophet of God among the northern tribes of the nation of Israel you may or may not know that the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, this great nation that came forth from him after a period of time of dwelling in the promised land that God had given to them, there was a civil unrest, if you will. There was a, a civil war, and the nation was split in two. And so 10 of the tribes of Israel, they dwelled in the northern part of modern-day Israel, and two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were down in the south. They held the land wherein was the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And in the 8th century BC, there was a prophet of God who was speaking to the people there among the northern ten tribes. His name was Hosea. And God instructed Hosea to do something that was incredibly difficult, something that was maybe near the point of impossibility. 
Hosea chapter 1. You can, in fact, turn to Hosea because we're going to be there for a little while. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2. God said to this prophet, he said, go and take for yourself a wife who is a prostitute and have children with that woman that is a harlot. Now, of course, if any of us were ever asked to do something like that, our immediate response would probably be, why? Why is it, God, that you're asking me to do this thing that really I I ought not to do under the law of God, under the law of Israel? Why are you instructing me to do something that very honestly God is going to bring heartache and pain? That's the only possible outcome will be ultimate heartache and pain. Nevertheless, Hosea did what God had commanded him to do, and he went in unto this woman who is now his wife. Her name was Gomer, interesting name. And they had three children. And each of these three children that they had, and in the experience of their lives with each other and with these three children, God is revealing the depths of his great love, the depths of his great heart for his people, the nation of Israel, the children of Abraham. We see in this relationship of Hosea with Gomer and these three children that would come from her, the heartache and the pain that God experienced in his people Israel or from his people Israel. Ultimately, each of these children, God would instruct Hosea what he was to name them. There in chapter 1, we see each of them coming forth. In chapter 1, verse 4, we read of the first son that would be born, and God commanded that Hosea name this child Jezreel. And Jezreel is a word that describes an action when a human would take something in their hand and grasp that object and cast it away, to toss it away, as if you were to take a piece of trash and toss it into the trash. That's what Jezreel means. And the application of this name was that God was going to take his people who had become a withered and dry thing. He was going to take his people, the nation of Israel, who had turned from him, and he was going to toss them away. He's going to cast them away. And then a second child would come. This time it would be a girl, and God instructed in verse 6 that Hosea would name her Loramah, which means unpitied. For Israel, as a result of their idolatry and their harlotry against God and turning away from God, they were turning and harloting themselves among idols. God says, I'm not going to have pity on you. And so the first son would be named Jezreel. I'm going to toss you away. And God says, in the same way, I'm going to toss you, my my people. I'm going to cast you away into a far country. And the second one, Lorama. I'm not going to pity you when I cast you off. And then the third time, Gomer conceived, and this time bore another son, and God commanded that Hosea would name this son Lo-Ami, which means not my people. God's final proclamation upon his people that had become a sinful people is given there in verse 9 of Hosea chapter 1. Look at it with me, if you would. Hosea chapter 1, verse 9 Then God said, I want you to call this child's name Lo-Ami, for you, Israel, are not my people, and I will not be your God. Because of their sinful unrighteousness, because of their idolatry, their harlotry against God, who was their maker, and also Isaiah describes him as their husband. 
Because of their sin against God, God in the eighth century would proclaim through the prophet Isaiah to his called out ones, to his people. He would say to them, you are not my people and I will not be your God. Now, that may sound very harsh, but it's actually in fulfillment of the law. There in the book of Deuteronomy, God instructed the people that if you would seek me, if you would follow me, if you would serve me, then you will be my people and I will be your God. But if you won't, then I will cast you off. I will Jezreel you, if you will. And you will not be pitied by me when I do because you have declared by your actions that I am not your God, therefore you are not my people. The question would be, why would God say such a thing? Why would he look upon these people who had been his people and say, you are no longer my people, I am no longer your God? Well, turn to chapter four of the same book, Hosea chapter four, look at verse 17. It's a very simple Short verse, Hosea chapter 4, verse 17, Ephraim, that's the northern ten tribes, that's what they were called, Ephraim is joined to idols. Ephraim's married to idols. Let him alone. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. In letting them alone, God would give them over to vanity. He would turn them over ultimately to be judged. Hosea, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he would continue. Look at chapter 8, Hosea chapter 8. Look at verse 8. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles. Like a vessel in which is no pleasure. Then verse 14, the beginning of the verse, for Israel has forgotten his maker. The reason that Israel is in this condition there in the time of Hosea, about 750 years before Jesus would come on the scene, the reason that they had come to this place is because they had forgotten their God. They had forgotten their maker. They had turned their back on him. They had been joined to idols. They had transgressed his law. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image. You shall not take the, names, the Lord's name in vain. And all these things they had done. We saw in our survey of Romans chapter 9 last time that God, from the same lump of clay, fallen humanity, from that same lump, he can fashion one vessel for honor and another for no honor. And here in Hosea chapter 8, the northern ten tribes, they had become a dishonorable vessel. You see it there in verse 8 of Romans chapter 8. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles. They're just like the other nations, just like the Gentiles. And they are like a vessel that, in which is no pleasure. Now, upon whom these people God would declare, look at chapter 9, Hosea chapter 9, verse 15. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Why? Because of the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. And all their princes are rebellious. Hosea says in verse 17, his own commentary on the word that God was giving to him. Hosea says, my God will cast them, his own people, that now no longer are his people. He will cast them away. Why? Why would God do this? Well, notice his commentary, verse 17. Because they did not obey him, and they, were, they shall be wanderers among the nations. 
That word nations there, it's the Hebrew word goe, it's also translated Gentiles, heathens. They, because of their disobedience, because they've turned in their hearts away from God, they're going to be wanderers among the nations. And all this would come upon Israel, God's called out ones, because, look at Hosea chapter 11, Hosea chapter 11, verse 5, it would come upon them because, the end of the verse, they refused to what? They refused to repent. They refused to turn back to God, even though He lovingly and patiently would reach out to them. The very fact that God would send a man like Hosea, just one among many prophets, to His people was to call them back. They had backslidden. They had turned away. They were stubborn. They were rebellious. They were no different than Pharaoh that we already considered back in Exodus whose heart was hard towards God. And so God calls to them long-sufferingly, patiently, calling that they would turn, that they would repent, but they would not repent. And so God declares as a result of your irreverence, as a result of your stubborn rebellion and your lack of repentance, your impenitence, I'm going to cast you away. I'm not going to pity you. You will no longer be my people. Now, what does this have to do with Romans chapter 9, the text that we're in tonight? Well, Paul knew that some of his readers would object to the teaching that he gave at the end of Romans chapter 8. You remember those last words, the very last words of Romans chapter 8? He says there, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, if that is true, if it is true that nothing can snatch us from his love, then what about his people? What about the Jew? Those very people that he would proclaim through the prophet Isaiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. If it's true that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, then how is it that God's people upon whom he had placed his love, how is it that they could be cast away, Jezreel? How could it that they could be separated from the love of God? Paul knew that that would be the objection of some in reading Romans chapter 8, but he also knew that there would be another rejection. Paul recognized an objection that would come, especially from those who were from Jewish lineage, and they would object and say, Gentiles would be recipients of God's mercy, of God's grace, and Jews would be lost? How could it be possible that the nations, the heathens, those who are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how is it possible that they could be recipients of mercy and grace and salvation? And so, in response to these two objections, Paul is giving clear prophetic proof from the Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures. He's pointing back to the prophets. You see, Paul rightly recognized that the Old Testament, the scriptures, they are written for our instruction. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, let me read it to you there. Paul says, now all these things, the Old Testament, all these things happened unto them, the children of Israel, as examples, and they were written for our admonition, our instruction, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Paul knew 
that all those scriptures that he knew very well as a Jewish Pharisee, many of which he had memorized, he understood that those things had prophetic significance. Those things pointed forward toward how God would work in and through the world beyond the nation of Israel. All the happenings that happened to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those things have application for us who live in this day. Which is why it's incredibly unfortunate that so many people never read the Old Testament. Never take the time to consider what Genesis through Malachi has to say and what application it has for us today. You see, there's much to be gleaned from Genesis through Malachi, and yet those first 49 books of the Bible, many times people don't spend any time there at all. 39 books, sorry. We need what is written in there because it's applicable to us today. It's written for our instruction, our admonition. And this is why Paul, here in this passage of Romans, as he's answering these objections, now he points back to the prophets, two prophets specifically, two prophets who lived at this exact same time in history, Two prophets who prophesied to the same group of people, although one to the northern tribes of Israel and another to the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Hosea, the prophet who lived from, and ministered from about 755 B.C. to 710 B.C. among the northern ten tribes, and Isaiah, who ministered during the very same period of time to Judah and Benjamin in the south. Two prophets who spoke to a group of people who were called out by God to be God's special treasure, to be God's priests to this world through which God would shine to Gentiles, and yet they had rejected what it was that God had called them to do or to be, and therefore God sent prophets to them. Prophets to call them back, prophets to share with them what it was that God would do in response to their actions And so back to Romans chapter 9, verse 25. Paul says, As he, God, says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass, in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Now, the context of Paul's quotations from Hosea, and he's quoting from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, in that order. These quotations, the context, is in relationship to the northern tribes of the nation of Israel, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the context. But Paul here in Romans chapter 9 is applying it to Gentiles. So although the early prophetic significance or context was to the nation of Israel in the 8th century B.C., Paul says here in the 1st century in which he lived and continued on from there, it has application as God reaches out to and speaks to people who are not Jews, not descendants of Abraham, and he calls them who were not his people to be his people. Although God would declare to Israel there in Isaiah chapter 1 through the pro- I'm sorry Hosea chapter 1 through the prophet Hosea as he had that third child that third son he says I want you to call that son Lo Ami why because my people they are no longer my people Although God declares to them, you are not my people because of their sin there in Hosea 1, he would promise in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, that he would regather some 
of those same people to make them his people once again. So imagine the scenario here. What's going on? Hosea chapter 1, God says to his sinful people there in Israel, you are no longer my people. And then one chapter later he says, but I'm going to call out a remnant from that group of people that are no longer my people, those who I've, I've wadded up and tossed them out, I'm going to call some of them to come back. I'm going to call a remnant to return to me. In Hosea's day, Israel, because of their sin, they would lose their position with God to serve him in his work here upon the earth, and then they would no longer be called the people of God. He would no longer be called their God, and yet God would have mercy upon some and call them back to be his people again. And so Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this not only applied to the nation of Israel 800 years before Paul was writing this to the church at Rome, but it also has prophetic significance for us today who are Gentiles. How many Gentiles, non-Jews here today? The Bible has significance for us. Even things that were written 2,800 years ago, there's application for us. You see, we, we're not the people of God. And yet God calls out to those people who are not his people and says, I want you to be my people. I want you to be my people. You know, we all want to be someone's people. You know that saying, I got my people. Don't you want to be the people of God? People says, you're my people. And yet we recognize most of us, almost all of us raised our hands when I asked, are any of us Gentiles? Most of us said, yes, we're Gentiles. We were not the people of God. And yet, out of the Gentiles, we who were not God's people, God would extend mercy. He would extend mercy to us that we would be called his people. Now the question is, how can those who are not his people become his people? Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. 1 Peter ironically comes just before 2 Peter. Right after the books of Hebrews, and James, 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, now the context of the you here is given to us in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There we find that Peter is writing to those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So he's writing to those who have been saved by grace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He's writing to the church. And he says this, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special, what? Say it a little louder. His own special people. You are his own special people. Now I know some translations say peculiar people, and we probably fit that really well. His own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who did what? Called you. Of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Look at verse 10. Who once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. 
Notice what we learn from this text from Peter, inspired of the Holy Spirit, also quoting from the prophet Hosea. Any and all who become the people of God do so by responding to his merciful call. Let me say that again. Any and all who would become the people of God do so by responding to his merciful call. God's call is central to what we're looking at here in this text to becoming the people of God. Notice what we already saw in Romans chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. It says there, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So God calls people who were not his people from the Jews and from the Gentiles. He puts forth the call. We saw last week, And two passages of Scripture from the Gospel of Matthew, two parables that many are called, but few are elect. I know our minds immediately go to chosen, but the word chosen there is the Greek word eklektos, from which we get our English word elect. Many are called, but few are chosen. Elect. Only a remnant become the ones who are elect. And the question becomes, well, how then do we become those who are the elect? Paul continues there in Romans chapter 9. We've already looked at it, but notice the repetition of the word call here in verses 24 and 25. Right after he says in verse 24, even us whom he has called, not of Jews only, but also of Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. We become the vessels of mercy, prepared for glory by God's calling and our response to it. We considered last week those passages, many are called but few are chosen. How do you become the elect? How do you become the chosen? I suggest to you that you respond to the call. You see, we see God's sovereignty here in Romans chapter 9, but we're almost to Romans chapter 10, and in Romans chapter 10, we're going to see man's responsibility because there in that passage, it's going to say, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? These things are working in concert together, church. The sovereign call of God and the responsibility of man to respond to that call. So both Jews and Gentiles that respond to God's merciful call become the recipients of grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, we are elect only in Christ. Outside of Christ, we have no hope. Whether you're a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or a Gentile that has nothing that you can point back to in your past that gives you any sort of, you know, position with God. Whether you have a position with God or not, the only way to be saved is to be in Christ Jesus. The only way to be the chosen. Although the call goes to many, the only way to be the elect is to be in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 makes that very, very clear. Well, the question then comes, why aren't all Israel, descendants of Abraham, descendants of Isaac, the promised son, descendants of Jacob who would become Israel, 
why are not all descendants of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saved? You see, there were many people of Jewish heritage in the first century. Paul, when he went by the name Saul before he received Christ as his Savior, he was one of these people, a Jewish man who believed himself to have position with God because he was a descendant of Abraham, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. According to the law, he was blameless. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He put a lot of stock in his stock. And so as a result, he thought he was saved. And he was not the only one. Many people among his brethren, his countrymen, the Jews, believed themselves to be saved because they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why are not all Israel saved? Notice what we see in verse 27, Romans chapter 9. Isaiah. Not just Hosea, but Isaiah. Isaiah has something to say. Again, the very same period of time in which Hosea was ministering and prophesying among the northern ten tribes, just a couple hundred miles south, there in the land of Judah and Benjamin, another prophet by the name of Isaiah was prophesying. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, notice this, underline it in your Bible, the remnant shall be saved. The remnant will be saved. For he, God, will finish the work and he will cut it short in justice or righteousness because the Lord will make a quick work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before that, he quotes Isaiah a second time, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, a remnant, we would have been like Sodom. We would have become like Sodom and would have been made like unto Gomorrah. You see, some see unfairness with God in that many of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is the children of Israel, are not granted entrance into heaven while some Gentiles are. Many people look at that and say, that just doesn't seem right, that doesn't seem fair. He called Abraham, he called Isaac, he called Jacob and all the descendants that he saved out of Egypt. It just doesn't seem right that there's many of them that sit in darkness still today, blinded, not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. They've not received him, and therefore, they have not received the grace and mercy of God. And therefore, if they don't, they will step into eternity without the covering of his blood, without his righteousness. And so some look at that and say it seems unfair. The Jewish people, they counted themselves recipients of God's promise whether they were faithful to God or not. And yet the Old Testament does not bear that out. The scriptures do not support that. For God prophesied through the prophet Isaiah. There in Isaiah chapter 10, this is where Paul is quoting from. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 22. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with justice, with righteousness. God is completely just in the judgment that he brings. For the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of armies, heaven's armies, will make a determined end in the midst, end in the midst of the land. He will execute justice. God did promise Abraham that he would have descendants that would be more in number than the stars of the sky. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. And then on to Isaac. He says in 
Genesis chapter 26, verse 4, that they would be more in number than the sand of the sea. To Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, verse 12, God reaffirms his covenant and his promise four times in the first 32 chapters of the book of Genesis. We see God say to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're going to have more descendants than the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea. And God, when he repeats things, he doesn't do it without purpose. But through Isaiah, God reveals that salvation would only come to the remnant. Although the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be as the sand of the sea, salvation would come only to the remnant. Now, the context of Paul's quotation there of Isaiah is important. Hosea was prophesying to the northern ten tribes of Israel. Isaiah was prophesying to the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin at the exact same time, and the conditions in the nation were interesting. Both the northern ten tribes and the southern tribes had turned away from God in their hearts, but the sin of the northern ten tribes was greater in their idolatry, and so God promises through the prophet Hosea and others that a judgment was going to come. In Isaiah chapter 10, God says exactly who the judgment would come by. The tool that God would use to execute his judgment would be the Assyrian army. And it was there during the end of the 8th century BC that the Assyrian army, led by Tiglath Pileser, the king of Assyria, came in and judged the northern ten tribes, led them away captive. They became the lost tribes of Israel. But not only did that judgment consume the northern ten tribes, that judgment almost completely destroyed the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin as well. And it was in the midst of that, that prophecy of that coming judgment, that God says to Isaiah these words here in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. It shall come to pass in that day, what day? The day when the Assyrians come to judge that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend upon him who defeated them, but they will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in sincerity, in truth. Who would the remnant of Israel be that would be saved, that would return? It would be those who would trust with sincerity upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Verse 21, Isaiah chapter 10. The remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob. Who will they return to? Not just to the land, to the mighty God. They're going to return to the mighty God. Verse 22. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness, with justice. It will happen quickly. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth, Paul Paul quotes Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 1. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom or like Gomorrah. You see Isaiah inspired by the Spirit of God to prophesy. He said, if it were not for God's mercy and His grace to call forth a remnant, we, His own chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we would have been completely consumed just like Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. But because God left us a remnant, we have not been consumed. The children of Israel, both in the north and in the south, because of their sin, they were worthy of judgment. Because of their idolatry, 
because of their adultery, because they turned from God. And unless it had been for God's mercy and grace, saving some, the remnant, they would have been completely wiped out. Well, how is it then that the remnant, both of Israel and also humanity, because that's the context of what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 9, how is it that the remnant is saved? Well, look with me at the very last verses of Romans chapter 9, beginning there in verse 30. Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? Paul says in response to all the evidence, in response to the evidence we see in the life of Esau and Isaac, in response to what we see, I'm sorry, in the life of Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and Jacob, in response to what we see in the life of Moses and Pharaoh earlier in Romans chapter 9, in response to the word of Hosea, in response to the word of Isaiah, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they didn't seek for it by their own works, they have attained or appropriated righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, they have not attained, they have not appropriated the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the what? By the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. How is it that a remnant of Gentiles, a remnant of Jews, would become righteous in Christ and be saved? How would that come about? Paul tells us exactly how it comes about. It comes about only by faith in Christ Jesus. It comes only by receiving his righteousness, not trying to work out your own righteousness. Why did largely the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, from the time that Paul roamed the earth until now in 2013, why is it that those who were descendants of the promises, those that came from the fathers, those who had the covenants, those who had the scriptures, why is it that they have not appropriated the grace of Christ? He tells us right here, because they sought it not by faith, but by the works of the law, and by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. No one makes themselves righteous by the works of the law. We are only saved by grace through faith. Therefore, if we hear and heed and respond to the call of the gospel, putting our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, we appropriate righteousness in Christ, for there is salvation in none other. He is the only way. The people who were not a people, us Gentiles, would become a people by God's mercy and grace, but the people that were the people, Israel, would not be the people because they sought it outside of his mercy and his grace. Have you ever been asked to do something incredibly difficult? something that seemed impossible. The wonderful thing about salvation, it's not incredibly difficult or impossible for us to lay hold of. Whosoever 
calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, God is not calling you or me or those outside these doors to do something that is difficult or impossible, although our flesh fights against it. He calls to us to put our trust in Him for salvation, to no longer trust in our own works or our own strength, but to trust in the living God. Amen? Would you stand with me and let's pray? Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank, the, thank you that you extend righteousness to us by faith and not by our works. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be able to articulate that, to share that with those we come in contact with in our neighborhoods, among our family members who don't know you, in our workplace, wherever we'll go. Lord, we thank you that as we're going to see when we get into Romans chapter 10, that whosoever calls upon you shall be saved. Whoever believes in you will not be put to shame, whether Jew or Gentile, for you are the same Lord that is rich to all who call upon you. Lord, we pray that if there's any here tonight who have not called upon you for salvation, that they would confess their sins to you tonight, believe and trust in what you did for us on the cross, accept that as a payment, Jesus, and turn from their sins to follow you. Work that in our lives, we pray. Draw those who have not done so yet, we ask.